Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-432 of the Run Run Live podcast. You might hear some wind noises in the background. I get the window open here in my office because it's a nice, low-humidity day, mid-60s, and we've had some real humidity here in the last couple of weeks, so I'm letting the house air out a little bit. Of course, everything will be covered with pollen, but, you know, what can you do? How are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? And I ask this because it's a powerful question. I find myself slipping more and more into sort of a coaching and advising role as I get uh, deeper into my career, as they say. And these past couple weeks, I've found that question to be very useful, very powerful. And it's also a gift, right? You ask someone, how are you doing? Right. Start your conversation by leaning into that Zoom call, smiling in a concerned way into that grainy laptop camera and asking, how are you doing? And then sit back and be prepared to listen, to be empathic. Because, you know, you have to nod understandingly. You have to practice those listening skills because people want to talk. They feel cooped up. They want to talk. And that's an enormous gift you can give these days. So there you go, a little tip right out of the right out of the box. And I'm doing okay. I've been working on my nutrition still. It's been about two months now. And I've gotten close to 170 on a couple days, but keep popping back up to 175-ish as soon as I eat something. But I'm feeling leaner, right? I feel like it's more of a sy- systematic thing. Uh, it's a bit frustrating. I'm really not getting enough miles in my training to cause a lot of weight loss, you know, to move that needle. And I have such a low metabolism that I just don't burn a lot of calories during the day when I'm sitting here in my office not moving. We've got a good and timely show today. I sit down with our friend Greg who uh, you well, you'll find out all about it as we get into the conversation. But we talk about some practical strategies for coming out of the apocalypse. And in section one, I'll talk a bit about some strategies that you can use to turn all these nascent runners into lifelong runners. Huh? Turn these joggers into runners. And in section two, I'll talk about made-up things 
which is probably also timely. So they canceled Boston. It had been rescheduled to September, but they sent an email to us yesterday, earlier this week, that the race was being canceled. And it seems like you can get a refund, and there's going to be some sort of virtual race. And if you run the virtual race, they'll mail you your shirt and your medal. But I have a feeling it's going to take a couple days for all the details to be 100% certain. And if you were paying attention to the news here, you got to see our some of our New England people, some of our Boston people. You got to see Marty Walsh, Mayor Marty Walsh. And that, my friends, if you watch Marty Walsh, that is the face of every Irish politician in Boston right there. Mayor Marty. It, that's the face of the of the stadies at the airport waving you along. You can't park here or leaning in your car window looking for a license and registration, please. Anyhow, <laughs> so there you go. Uh, I was running uh, on a charity bib this year anyhow, so not sure how that works. I'm out of qualification. I haven't qualified. Now I got more time I can qualify, right? Funny thing is, I'm in good shape. I've got no injuries and have been basically training since December with my recent weight loss and nutrition. I'm running fast for me. I think the only thing missing for me is a couple big volume weeks and I could race really well. I've been doing a lot of shorter tempo runs and have been hitting good paces even on my tired days and I don't feel like I'm in great shape. I feel like I'm old and tired and slow my legs are achy and sore, especially my quads on the uphills. But my tempo is in the mid-sevens, which is a minute off my PRs from 20 years ago, but I only need an 813 to BQ. I'm also still slogging away at the virtual race across Tennessee. The t-shirt showed up. I'm falling behind, though, I think. My puny 30-odd miles a week just doesn't cut the mustard, c'est la vie. Went for a bike ride yesterday, and I have a story about that. I did about 26 miles in about an hour and a half, so not really pushing it. But I almost got decapitated. True story. So, I was rolling down this big hill towards the end of my ride, maybe going, you know, 20, 25 miles an hour, just on Fujisan, recovering from just having struggled up the backside of said hill, and there was this big construction dump truck coming up the hill in the other direction. And you know the ones I'm talking about. They are used to carry those great loads of dirt and rocks around from construction sites, right? The big ones, not the pickup trucks, the big ones. Now, our roads here in New England, especially the back roads, tend to be a bit rough towards the edges. I usually try to stay out of the gutter where the roughest bits are, especially when I'm going fast. And I had checked over my shoulder. I was the only one on the road in my direction. And I was, therefore, riding out towards the center edge of the lane, keeping my eye on the truck as well, because for some reason people sometimes drift over into your lane, and I was not going to win that argument. Now, apparently, this guy, and I'm sure it was a guy, had thrown some long lumber boards into the empty back of the dump truck. And I suppose when he started, they were sticking out the back. But these trucks, those trucks, they're pretty bouncy when they don't have dirt in them. 
and the lumber had drifted with the jostling and was sticking out of the truck sideways into oncoming traffic. Now, I'm not entirely sure if it was low enough to actually hit me, but at the last second, I ducked, and I I felt a bit violated, but not decapitated, and I'll take violated over decapitated on most days. And as I turned around to yell some salty language, it did look like he was stopping to fix this potential pedalist guillotine, and that's a story I'm not going to share with my wife. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. So you started running during the stay at home. What now? How do you use exercise as a keystone habit? If the parade of humans passing by my window every day over the last six weeks is any indicator... A lot of people have taken up running during the pandemic. And why not? You're working from home. You don't have to commute. The weather's been nice. No excuses not to get out and take up that fitness routine you've always hankered for. Well, folks, taking the long view, these new runners, joggers, walkers are going to either give up in a week or maybe competing with us for Boston qualifying times two years from now. The question is, how do we help them stay with it? How do we graduate them from incidental joggers to a lifestyle that includes fitness? And do they even want or need our help? Well, here's some advice that you can share. Number one, focus on creating a habit. The most important thing is to create the habit. Habits are made in 20 to 30 days. The new behavior needs a month to sink in. Habits go through a number of phases. The first phase is one of commitment and enthusiasm, and this only lasts for a couple days. That's why most resolution-type projects last less than a week. You lose the enthusiasm, you stop. And that's why you have to commit to the whole 20 to 30 days. That's why you have to go in expecting low points and bad days and days when you just can't bring yourself to do it. And on those days, you are just going to have to show up anyhow. Number two, don't try to do too much. I mean, set yourself up to succeed, not fail. Don't worry about all this other stuff, diet or shoes or anything. Just get out and do a little something every day. What gets people in trouble is setting high expectations that they're going to change their whole way of life, gosh darn it. And then the process quickly becomes overwhelming and they give up. If you can't do it all, why do any of it? So don't do that. Set the bar lowish so you can feed off success. Number three, expect there to be challenges along the way. Human nature, for some reason, is to expect a nice linear upward improvement. But that isn't how organic systems, read humans, work. Success is a squiggly line. You have good days, you have bad days. And you have to have this expectation when you start. Cut yourself some slack and just keep showing up. Showing up is the goal, nothing else. Forget about your expectations and what you've convinced yourself is supposed to happen and just execute. Life is about showing up. You committed to the long-term project. Now 
you have to see it through. Number four, sore isn't bad. Remember long, long, long ago when you first started exercising? Maybe as a kid when you signed up for some sport. Remember how sore you were for the first week before your body got into shape? That's going to happen. It's okay to be sore. That's your body waking up. And it's okay to run when you're still sore from your last run. As long as it's not a sharp pain, an easy run or walk is a great way to clear muscle soreness by getting some blood flow to the area. Number five, have a plan. Because you have these low points where you will just have to show up and you need to have a plan to fall back on. There are many learn-to-run plans out there. A popular one is the Couch to 5K. Another is the New York City Roadrunners Learn-to-Run program. Frankly, it doesn't matter. Pick one, follow it, do what it says. And then on those days when you just show up, you have a script to follow. Having a plan saves you the mental energy of having to figure out what to do. And most of these plans are 90-day plans. 90 days is a long time. I'll give you a pro tip. If you're struggling with the plan, drop back a week or two. This will make it easier, but still give you the structure that you need. Number six, get a coach or at least a pal, a partner. If you can get a coach, do it. They will give you accountability, even if it is just a member of the local running club to check in with every day. Having an accountability partner in crime will raise the probability of you showing up. Number seven, keep a log. Should you keep a log? Yes, especially for these early days. Make the time to keep a log. It'll give you a way to enter your progress, but also a place to vent your frustration and whine a little bit. It's the running equivalent of a daily journal. It's good for your head. Number eight, don't care what other people say or think. I get it. New runners are squeamish about being judged. Rightfully so. Make a deal with yourself right out of the gate that you don't care. You're doing this for yourself. This is for you. Every time you show up, you're celebrating you. Screw everyone else. They're just jealous. Number nine, don't buy crap. The secret to becoming a lifetime endurance athlete is showing up, not what you wear or carry. Feel free to buy clothes and equipment that makes you feel prettier or more enabled, but remember, you don't need it. And be especially cautious of people recommending shoes. Keep it simple. Shoes are a religious topic among runners. Start simple. Find your own way. Don't get caught up in it. And number 10, it gets better. Most of your beginner running plans will have a, a longish run once a week, the end of the week, 20 or 30 minutes of continuous running. And that may seem ridiculously hard when your body is screaming at you at the end of the first block. It takes some time for your body to figure it out, and you're not going to die. If you can push through these hard, panicky times and relax, before you know it, you'll turn the corner in more ways than one, and it'll start to feel good. Well, at least not terrible. So just stick with it. And remember, running 
and exercise in general is a keystone habit. Once you have this habit, it worms its way into the rest of your lifestyle. Having a run on the calendar for a hot morning makes that late-night glass of whiskey or cigar a lot less appealing. Looking forward to a race makes you think twice about that fifth slice of pizza. Having an exercise routine is a core part of a healthy, balanced lifestyle. It creates gravity to pull the rest of your habits into line. So celebrate yourself. You have chosen to live a better life. And now for today's featured interview. So, Greg, why don't you give me the 200 words on who you are and what you do? So, my name's Greg Melbourne. I'm a psychologist outside of Philadelphia. And I started running about 12-ish years ago, listening to your colleague, uh, Steve Walker Runner, and then quickly found you and for a while shared a coach with you and have done, I don't know, a couple dozen marathons and probably 60-odd halves and, and a bunch of other races. And uh, the reason we were going to talk this morning is you are a mental health professional. Professional. And we need to uh, spread a little oh. mental health in our world today. Right. In light of the COVID-19 festivities. Yeah. And I'll give the backstory here was that I'm in a business setting and yep. the companies that I consult with or work for they all are in the same sort of curve, right? Depending on the industry they're in, they have chunked it up into sort of a three-phase response to this process because companies are kind of like people, right? They got to figure out what they're going to do. And so I looked at that and all these companies saying, okay, what do you do to respond? What do you do to recover? What do you do to reimagine, right? So this three-phase of sort of, okay, I'm here, I'm now, how do I do what I got to do to take care of everything. And then there's the, okay, I'm coming out of it. What do I do to make sure I do that right? And then there's the, okay, I looked at this. What can I learn from it? How can I be a different butterfly once we come out of this, right? And I was thinking with you about how does that apply to people, right? right. And I think we're deep into, and it, and we're cycling through that react or respond phase right now. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in people. And I'm sure you see it in your practice. So I'm going to make it so we don't ramble on too much, because like I said, this is probably a a six-hour conversation. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to say, okay, when you give me one to three strategies, tactics on what you would tell the people who are trying to respond or react to this, and then I'll do the same. Yeah. You want to start or you want me to start? No, no, I'm fine to give it a shot. I was thinking about this. I think that's a helpful frame to consider, right? But it is a little bit of a business frame. And it also is important to recognize that it can be an iterative frame, right? That it's not like, okay, I've reimagined and now I just move on. We may have to recycle through and and respond yet again. And for me, I mean, I think I've kind of gone through this several times since this thing kicked off. I mean, this thing kicked off for me in in mid-March. So, you know, I'm two months into it, a little bit beyond that, right? But first, and I'm going to use some running analogies. I really thought this was more of like a 5K, right? I was going to be out of the office for a couple of weeks and then something was going to happen and I was going to be okay and uh, be back into work. And now it's transitioned and I really feel like I'm in the middle of the 15th or 16th mile of, of a marathon. 
But I also, the more I, I read the, the tea leaves of the, of the future, have to imagine, and I've only done one ultra, and, and uh, I think you have a little bit more experience in that, that field, that this is most likely going to be some sort of ultra event. So, yeah. and every time I've done any race, I'm constantly in that, in that place of how do I feel right now? Yeah. What's my body telling me and, and how am I feeling about it? And how am I going to respond and make this experience, whatever I'm going through, as positive as I can? And so in a 5K, it's pretty easy. It's like, do I have a little bit more juice to give? Can I hold this pace for a little bit longer? And you just try and hold on. In a marathon, I, your experience probably has a lot more to, than mine, but I've had marathons where mile seven, I took a goo that that just gave me the worst bellyache. And I started to lament that the whole race was shot. But by mile 10, 11, 12, my stomach was recovered. And I was like, you know what? I still have this. It's still okay. And I think those are helpful reminders of where we are in this process. Because I, this is the second time you and I have talked a little bit, right? We talked yeah. a couple of weeks ago. And, and um, I have to tell you, like last week was an emotional funk week for me. I was yeah. tired. I was cranky. I was achy. And I was really unsure about how long this thing was going to go on. I still am. But just kind of down about all that. Yeah. But now I, I'm kind of gearing up for this to be an indeterminate thing. And I'm imagining that not only like the challenge I have with, with stuff like reimagination is that it sometimes it, it feels like there's pressure. Like, yeah. holy cow, I, I have to come out of here better, you know, stronger, different than sure. I was. And the reality is sometimes you just have to get out of it. You know, you just have to survive it. Um, yeah. And if you come out improved in some way, that's cherry on the cake. But right now, I think we're all still kind of reeling with the daily deluge of new revelations about how long this is going to be and how safe we are. What would you say to that, Chris? So here's what I tease out of that. First thing you said that was really smart was the ability to observe mm -hmm. and to observe yourself, right? And that ties back to sort of trying to stay in the now because right. It's overwhelming people sure. and it's overwhelming them because they're looking ahead and they see all this uncertainty and they lose that ability to say, well, actually, I'm sitting in my heated house looking out the window. It's a beautiful day, right? They, they sort of create that situation that gives them that uncertainty and stress. So grounding yourself through backing right. out of your animal mind, your emotional mind and getting right. into your control center and observing and saying, huh, that's happening versus, oh, my God, I'm going to die, Right. So that's right. the well, first thing that, I heard. Yeah, because that first thing, that, that reaction phase can sometimes send us down a rabbit hole of, of anxiety and worry. And if we just, like you said, take a step back, take a couple deep breaths and notice what is okay, we don't have to get all uh, tied up in, in some uncertain future. Right. And the second thing that you said was smart is uh, just the ability to keep showing up, right? Right. And stop hanging so much value on your performance. Right? Yeah. And this will right. tie this back to running, right? When they asked Desiree Linden what her secret to success was, right? What did she say? I just keep showing up, right? right? And eventually she won the Boston Marathon. Right. Um, so take all that expectation off yourself that this, the corollary to that is I'm feeling guilt, right? For not getting yeah. stuff done, for not, like you said, that reimagine feels like it's a task and it hangs heavy on you. I'm getting that where I, why shouldn't I be able to do this? Right. Um, so you got to give yourself some slack and again, right. observe that say, why am I feeling that? right? Cause yeah. I'm getting the same thing. I'm getting lows and getting highs. So I think that's a great analogy to an ultra marathon because yeah. in an ultra marathon, there will be moments where you go like, okay, I am gone, right? I can't move my legs. I'm throwing up, you know, yeah. I am gone. I got blisters on my private parts. I, yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. 
but then it gets better. And right. an hour later, you'll be, wow, this is great. Look at this beautiful place, right? So you got to sort of work through those highs and lows. So I'll give you my two for this um, recover, mm-hmm. which have been helpful for me. One is just habits and schedule. And I guess this goes back to observe, right? Without putting pressure on yourself, just observe how you're spending your time and whether the, there's new habits like people are binge watching news that gets talked about a lot. Don't do that, right? So don't create new bad habits just because you have time. And then there's, you know, there's good habits, right? What good habits can you insert in there to take the place that are actually going to help you in the process? And yeah, I mean, look at your schedule because theoretically, you've got an hour of commute you just got rid of. You should have a lot of time, right? Yeah, and and when this thing kicked off, I saw online uh, in some article about Tolstoy together. So I've had a, a copy of War and Peace kicking around in my basement for, for years, and I never got through the first 100 pages. And it said, look, you can do 15 pages a day. Let's just try that. And and it's a communal experience, and I'm almost 1,000 pages into it now. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the Reader's Digest version, by the way, is 600 pages long. <laughs> Well, I haven't read it in the Russian, but I did. I did, did live yeah, over you, there. <laughs> you speak Russian, so yeah. I love the Russian novelist, by the way. And the other thing that I found really helpful in this is to communicate with people. So just having a Zoom call or whatever with someone and listening to them, right? Just call someone you know or even a work person and say, okay, what's going on? Tell me what your day was, right? And just listen. And that'll ground you, right? Yeah, I mean, for, for folks who are familiar with the 12 steps of recovery, the 12th step is uh, service and helping others. And uh, folks who struggle with addictions or, or maladaptive behavior and embrace that program of change find that when they're jammed up, when they're in their own negative headspace, that trying to reach out to somebody else, give them a, a helping hand, inevitably helps them out of whatever funk they're going through too. Yep, Very absolutely. True. And Very true. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of that, especially at work. And just keeping a positive attitude, right? And that's part of that showing up is just keeping a po- forcing yourself to say the positive thing instead of saying sure. the complaining thing, which yep. I don't think that has anything to do with the situation we're in. I think that's just a general thing. Um, yeah. So when we move into this next phase, which is people are going to be coming out of their houses, you know, places are opening up. It's a whole new, different layer of anxiety. What are one to three strategies, tools you would say to your trusted clients? Yeah. First and foremost, reiterating what you just said, checking in with yourself as you're trying to, to operate, B- being mindful of how you're feeling. And when you're starting to get anxious and upset and wanting to lash out or yell at somebody for not wearing a mask or standing too close to you, just notice how that's making you feel and whether there's any. I was talking to somebody recently who doesn't like to run in a mask, but she's like, you know, I, I always run away from people like I cross the street or whatever. So I'm never on the same um, sidewalk. And she said, but the other day I was running and uh, there were people on both sides of the street. Street and I didn't know what to do. I said, did you think about turning around? She's like, no. <laughs> so it's sometimes we just have to, you know, do the, the practical thing of, of not monitoring ourselves and turning around. The other thing is it's very easy to be critical. It's harder to be kind both to ourselves and to the people around us. And so when you have that urge to chastise or, or critique somebody else, just to remind them they're going through whatever they're going through and to try and, and treat them with as much respect as you would want to be treated. I know it's a the golden rule, but it still applies in a pandemic, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got myself uh, kind of twisted around the actually yesterday. I was having a low energy day and I went out for 
an out and back, right? So that's the run where you go out easy and then come back hard. Hard, right. And of course, my woods are just full of people, people who are never in the woods, right? Right, sure. And they're giving me the stink eye for running with my dog off leash and running mm. without a mask. Mm. And, and I'm getting pissed off. Because I'm like, my dog and I, we cut some of these trails. We've been running here for 25 years. Who the hell are you to be giving me the stink eye when I'm trying to get my workout in? But uh, your words are wise there. I should yeah. think differently, right? Here's this, what what do I know what's going on in this guy's head, right? right. And yeah. how hard would it be for me to hang a mask around my ears just to pretend I'm using it, right? Or keep the dog on the leash. Yeah, I mean... The thing that I think is hard for us to recognize at times is the amount of, of stress and pressure that, that many of us are experiencing because it's such a shared experience yeah. that we want to minimize it and be like, well, it's not really there, but it is. I mean, the fact that you and I have, have been socially distancing slash isolating for two months is one, a huge aberration of any kind of norm that we previously existed for either one of us. And then the fact that we're going into a period of uncertainty about you know whether our sports are going to resume or our daily activities are going to be the same. All of that accretion of stress does have a cumulative effect. And that's what I was trying to allude to last week, just feeling really tired. And it's easy, like you said, to get irritable and kind of uh, upset at, at people around us when you're in that environment and just recognizing it and, and trying to not put more pressure on yourself is really helpful. Yeah, because different people are going to be in different places. Yeah. So it's hard. So be kind. Yeah. Be kind. Check in with yourself. Definitely. Take it yeah. easy. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of, you. one of the things you said last week when we were talking is there's a lot of dissonance in people's lives right now where we have this electronic communication, but it's not real communication. Right. So our bodies are reaching out and looking for those physical signals and they're not finding them. And that causes a dissonance, which is exhausting. Yeah, exactly. You don't, you don't know it's exhausting. But at right. the end of the day, you're like, why am I whipped? I've been sitting in a chair for six hours. Why am I so tired? It's true. It's true. I would think, hey, man, I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm home. I've got my warm beverage beside me. Like things are life and life is good from that perspective. But I'm zooming in or tuning in with people who are going through different types of challenges. Every time I interact with them, if they come into my office, one of the things that happens subconsciously without either one of us trying is that our breath and our our physiology starts to regulate toward one another. There's a- You um, mimic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a symbiotic experience, right? That doesn't exist in the same way this way. Because like right now, as I'm looking at you and you're looking at me, I see your gestures and your nods and things like that. But I also see it with just enough of a delay that it's hard for my brain to figure out why did he say something a minute ago and now I'm seeing his mouth move. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know um, I mean? So, so- um, I'll give you something else, though, where I've learned recently in a lot of these, I get into a lot of these Zoom calls where there's 30 people on the call or 100 people on the call, and people tend to not want to turn on their cameras. Um, <laughs> right. So you should turn on your camera and pay attention and look at the camera and nod every once in a while, because I have seen where I'm cueing the speaker, where the speakers uh. are looking at that Brady Bunch layout. And they're just struggling for somebody to respond to. And if you nod your head and smile, you'll see them. You'll oh, see yeah. the reaction from them, right? So oh, there's yeah. still that physical communication going on. And that's oh, yeah. really interesting. So we're learning a lot. So let's move to the next bit, right? Is this an opportunity or am I just being a Pollyanna? You know, is this so, an opportunity for people to rethink their lives and find a better place? Look, anytime we slow down and interrupt our patterns, I think there's 
very fertile ground, right? And yeah, I mean, like if you use that gardening analogy, I mean, you're turning up the, the rich soil and you can plant some new seeds in there, right? Yeah. So I do think there's opportunity, but I think the biggest challenge that we're all facing when we're in this situation is to be patient with that opportunity, but to recognize just like uh, Rome wasn't built in a day and your marathon training didn't come overnight, like we're going to have to be patient until we understand more what's going to be different, how we're going to come out of it. But what we can realize is that we don't have to be the same person that went into this. If we didn't like our commute, maybe we negotiate with our boss about doing more telecommuting. I know that's a a theme that I'm hearing from a lot of people. If we didn't like our job, you know, maybe when we come out of this and and we take some classes online and look for a new career or, or a new specialty. If we don't like where we're living, again, when we come out of this, maybe we move closer to the ocean or up in the mountains, whatever the case may be. There's a lot of things that I think are going to get disrupted when you have this systemic upset. But Again, back to what I said at the very beginning, like I wouldn't put a lot of pressure on yourself while you're still in this kind of reacting, responding phase to figure that stuff out. Yeah. So just one more follow-up on that sort of recovery phase when people are coming out of their cocoons. I want to tell people to stand up for themselves and to Hmm. be empowered um, because there's a risk that people are going to use this. You know, there's going to be a lot of sort of made up structure going forward. Hmm. So if there's some place where you're not feeling safe or something that bothers you, be empowered to say something about it or to do something about it, right? Well, and just touching on that briefly, I mean, one of the things that we need to be careful about when we're under this much pressure and, and uncertainty is uh, retreating into addictive or maladaptive behaviors. So there's all these stories about how much alcohol is being sold and consumed. And unfortunately, alcohol is, is something that lowers your inhibitions and raises your aggression. And there are also stories of domestic violence and abuse that are happening with the pressures sure. because people are losing jobs. There's not as much money coming in. So I think, Chris, you, you got a really good point. Like if you feel unsafe, definitely expand your circle, ask for help, talk to others, professionals or, or friends. Because if you are living or surviving in an unhealthy situation, hopefully this can be the catalyst to getting you a better place. Yeah. Yeah. Because everything's changing right now. It's an opportunity, like you said. But on the, um, the sort of the reimagined front, I think you hit the one of the things you said was, was smart, which is if you look at maybe something that you've been having in the back of your mind or, or hit pause on, when the, the big reason you didn't do that before was you really like, oh, do I want to sacrifice this to do this? You know, there's all these sort of balancing right. pressures, trade-offs, trade-offs, and, you know, a helpful rubric for that is, is it something that you're passionate about, right? Right. Because typically we'll say something like, I'm passionate about this, but it doesn't make me any money. Uh, I've got the kids, you know, I got this, that, the other, and it falls to the bottom of the list. But you can take that thing that you're passionate about, and it doesn't mean you're going to sell your family and quit your job. You right. can do something else. You can join a board, right? Sure. I look back on being a race director, right? That yep. was a very good use. I was good at that because I was passionate about the thing we were doing, right? Yeah. So look for volunteer opportunities or just make something up. Like I made up a podcast because I like to write and yeah. like to do this stuff. So you can follow your passion and make time for it mm-hmm. without upsetting the apple cart. And this might be a good opportunity to do that, right? So think about yeah, as a, as long as Yeah, as long as you're not putting a whole lot of pressure on yourself to come out the butterfly quite yet, 
as long as you recognize that you might need to stay in the chrysalis a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, I think anything like this where you may have been on a certain trajectory that you didn't really like, but it's just what you fell into. And now you're like, I'd like to do something more artistic or something more athletic or something more creative in a different way. If there's something that's been mulling around that you wanted to write, these are the opportunities to explore that, right? We got a little bit more time. Like you said, that hour of commute yeah. is bound time. Yeah, and and the trade-off there is because because we're really saying two things that are opposite, right? We're saying do it, but don't have expectations, right? Right. So the the trick there is it's okay to say, okay, I'm going to run a hundred mile race, or I'm going to write a novel. That's okay, right? Big goals are okay. But then on the execution side, don't put your expectations on the result. Put your expectations on the process, right? So if I'm going to run a hundred mile race, there's a process there you got to follow to get there. Whether you actually finish the race or not is second, right? I'm going to write a novel. There's a process there, right? So right, and 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 all I'm saying is just like you said at the beginning, it's it's a desert thing. Just start showing up. So mm-hmm. if you want to run a, a long race, start running a little bit longer every day. And if that feels good, keep going. And if you find yourself injured or unhappy doing it, you know what? Maybe a hundred miles not your shtick. You yeah. know, start and, and start running a, a little bit. Yeah. If you hit a wall, that's not a stopping point. That's an opportunity to say, okay, what don't I know? Right. Right. And I call somebody. I right. make a new connection. I find some I learn something new. And that's the chrysalis part, right? That's where you're becoming. Right. right. So it's not the end goal, it's the process again. Right. Right. And and the same thing with the writing. Like if you've had these ideas, you just start to jot them down and then and then see if you can find an online community of other people who aspiring writers. And if you can get some support and guidance and, and feedback for hey. Does this read well? Like, should I should I keep doing this? But yeah. yeah, you're right. It's a balancing act as you go into this reimagination phase between really trying to embrace it and, and take full advantage of it and then stepping back and saying, you know what? I can only give what I can give, right? And not putting that, a ton of pressure to, to outperform your expectation. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. So I think we got a good chunk of time here. I know you have another meeting coming up. Yes, sir. So, uh, so I'll let you get back to your clients. And uh, yeah, what's our wrap up here? What's what do we want to leave people with? Well, I guess the biggest thing is for me, when I slow down, and when I check in, I get to know myself a little bit better. And if I can come out of this really scary time, I mean, yesterday, a client lost a loved one to COVID. I've got several clients who've had it. It's a real deal. But if I can come out of this just a a little bit more self-aware, a little bit kinder to myself and the people that I care about, and a little bit willing to take some risks and and, and opportunities that that I might not have wanted to try before that, hey, I'd consider that a win. All right. I got nothing to add to that. I'm going to let that lay there. All right, sir. And uh, like always, send me your stuff and I'll put it in the show notes. All right, sir. All right. Thank you. Be well. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Sapiens, Belief in Made-Up Things. One of the books I'm working through on my Kindle right now is called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuvai Noah Harari. Now, this book made a big splash a few years back among the cognoscenti for its big thoughts. And it is a bit of a Trojan horse, because on the surface it looks like one of those targeted history or anthropology books that goes deep into one particular fold of human attribute for exploratory and entertainment purposes. You know, there's a bunch of these books. And there are authors that make a good living going super deep 
on one person or error or animal or behavior, sort of the everything you want to know about XYZ genre. On the surface, this looked to be one of those, a deep dive into the evolution of sapiens, the thinking ape. But, like I said, it's a Trojan horse. It's actually a deep philosophical treatise in the mode of Walden or Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and it's not preachy or declarative like many of our current thought pieces. It's well-written, it's thoughtful, and it's thought-provoking. I'm still reading it. I'm most of the way through. And what I found, like most books of this type, you can't read it straight through. You need to read a bit, sit back, scratch yourself, let that bit digest, and then go back to it. And it also gets thicker or deeper as it progresses. The narrative peters out and it becomes more intellectually dense. So you lose the path, or more appropriately, the path goes away and leaves you exploring islands of thoughts from this man's mind. So let me pull a few thoughts out that I think you will be interested in. The first one is the crazy and unjustified egoism that we sapiens have as a subspecies. We are not, and we're never, that special or even unique. Homo sapiens was one of a family of thinking apes. Our cousins, like the Neanderthals, weren't that different from us. In fact, DNA shows that we interbred with these other subspecies. We carry part of their lineage with us. Archaeology is showing more and more that our cousins were not the dumb brutes that we like to picture them as. They buried their dead. They made art. They had fire. Even our living relatives today, the chimps and the bonobos and others like that, they're much more like us than we like to think. They think, they feel, they mourn, they share 98% of our DNA. The ridiculous thought that something is insignificant genetically as skin or hair or something like that makes us different is really thrown into stark relief by comparison if you look at this. And that leaves us with a big question. Why are we here? And why are our cousins not here? What makes Homo sapiens special? Not in a religious sense, but in a practical sense. What made this weak, hairless, thinking ape able to take over the world from top to bottom and muscle out everything else that got in the way? And if we play that thread out, what will stop us from burning out our world with our egotism? And here we come to an incredible insight. It really wasn't our ability to think. It wasn't our ability to make fire or use language or throwing sticks. It was our ability to make things up and believe in them that moved us to the top of the food chain. Our ability to believe in made-up things allowed us to organize into larger groups and direct that effort of the larger group and get things done. If you look at other apes, you'll find they organize into small family troops of 50 individuals or less. And once a troop gets bigger than a certain size, it has to split up. You, you just can't manage it. And you see this in organizations all around you. Without some sort of driving structure, groups of more than 100 people are pretty impossible to keep cohesive. But once we make up, 
a driving, unifying thought or purpose, we can have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and millions of sapiens willing to sacrifice their blood and treasure in the name of that made-up thing. And this is really the joy of this book to me. He walks through the long list of these innovations of made-up things that allowed we sapiens to take over the world. This is the real revolution. It's not the agricultural revolution. It's not the industrial revolution, although those are all part of it. It's the cognitive revolution, the ability to imagine things and then believe in them as a group. That's the keystone. And this leads to the made-up concepts of things like city-states and nations and empires. And this leads to a series of made-up gods and religions to work with empires, just part of the justification. And then there is the great cognitive leap of being able to externalize our memories and our made-up things. And there is the unifying concept of language and the ability to write things down. And we, sapiens, were able to imagine a series of marks to represent stored knowledge. And once we got going, we were able to imagine even bigger concepts to unify mankind. After religion, we made up money and science. All these unifying myths became intertwined in the inevitable march. And inevitably, family groups organize into tribes, tribes into nations, nations into empires. And religion works with empire. Empire works with science to muscle all out of the way. And the arrow of history just marches towards unification. And the author fits it all into the context of history and the cognitive evolution of Homo sapiens. It's a bit frightening because it leaves the same question. The same question that our forefathers must have had as they climbed out of a muddy hole, picked the ticks from their fur, and stretched to face a new day. The unanswered question is why? Where are we heading? Is this all a prelude to some sort of singularity event where we become gods? Or is it an inevitable march towards self-immolation? And we don't know the answer, but we have shown that we can imagine them. And this is my message. My friends, we are the thinking ape. Our species is only limited by what we can imagine. So don't get stuck in what has been built up and imagined around you. Everything in your life is made up, and you have chosen to believe in the things that you believe. It's all made up. As strongly as you feel about... <laughs> your religion, your politics, your nationalism, realize that these are all mutual myths. They are useful myths, but sometimes they lose their usefulness and, and we evolve. And it's okay. You have the ability as sapiens to imagine more, to imagine better, to imagine change or not. Until you imagine it, it can't be true. When you imagine it, you give it life. So that's your duty as a thinking ape. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, it is time to emerge from your cocoon and rise, chrysalis-like, chrysalis to butterfly, into the sweet-smelling morning air that is the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-432. How are you doing? Ha! Enough of that. Big news is that I got my garden planted. 
already have some good-sized lettuces in there. I'm a modern-day Cincinnatus. I'm not really. He grew cabbages and saved the Roman state. I grow lettuces and have saved, uh, nothing. Actual news is that our friend Eric, who you remember from Leadville last summer, ran across Missouri over the Memorial Day weekend. Yep, 245, 47 miles in three days and change. And he collected about $40,000 for charity uh, for the hospitality workers that have been laid off and and, uh, are out of work. I want to be like Eric when I grow up. We'll have to get him on the show to talk about this and, and how it happened so quickly and went off so well. And if you are at all curious about the detail behind all of the training techniques that I talk about, my coach, Coach uh, Jeff, has written them all down in an ebook, and it's linked here in the show notes. So we'll have to grab him and catch up at some point. I got the book. I have to read it. So I, I always like to read books by authors before I talk about them. Uh, but he knows more about this stuff than I have forgotten. And it's probably a good investment if you want to run better. And I have a question for you. When you're out doing a workout, what's the smallest denomination of money that you'll stop and pick up? Huh? I found three pennies on Friday. And I was quite pleased with myself. I stopped and got them partly because it was 70% humidity and I was still in my warm-up, so it didn't cost me anything to stop. How about you? Will you stop for the odd penny or does it take folding money to break your forward progress? I'm curious. And as I'm looking out of my office, read spare bedroom now that the kids are gone, window at Ollie the Collie. He's sleeping in the grass in the front lawn. Hey, he's going to bark for us. He turned one year old this week, and I'm not sure I will survive until he's three or four. He's got more manic energy than a crackhead. He drags me out of bed at 5 a.m. every morning, on the nose, and insists we go for a walk. And his idea of a walk is running full tilt up and down the trail, ripping logs out of the ground and bashing them into my legs, all while growling gleefully. He's absolutely nuts. So that's Ollie. Let's talk about words. I think words are very powerful. When we first, as humans, started writing things down, it was like a form of magic, right? Think spells, incantations, and the the power of the word. And since everything is made up, You get to use words, these magic words, to make up your own story, your own magic story. And this doesn't mean telling tall tales or lying. It means describing a path that you want to follow and following it. I heard this quote, this great quote from poet Gregory Orr this week, where he talked about the power of words. And it really struck me, so I thought I'd share. Let's remake the world with words, not frivolously, nor to hide from what we fear, but with a purpose. Let's remove the dust of custom so things shine again, each object arrayed in its robe of original light, and then we'll see the world as if for the first time, as once we gazed at the beloved who was gazing at us. 
So humbly, I submit that my own words are but fevered scratchings at the hard shell of reality, but words are the power of your narrative. And remember that as feeble as it may seem, you can create your own reality and pull people into it with words and narrative. And I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And to take you out is track number 11, Double Hockey Sticks, from Brian Shep, the rock opera, by the Nays, called Dusty Laptop. Enjoy. to read. 